Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another great Q&A with Dr. Mike. But before we get into that, he has a public service announcement that I've not even heard, so uh, I'm waiting, I'm on edge for this. The devil is real. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Although maybe I'm not kidding. Mm, give that some thought. So uh, here's a public service announcement. Steve and I were just talking about cardio and how like when you come closer to the end of a diet, you start to get kind of like sort of at a very deep level on by default lazy and you start to really slack on how you're moving on the treadmill or the cross trainer or anything. You're just kind of trying to bide the time. So my sort of public service announcement, I'm sure you guys have given us some thought before, but I think it's worth saying when you're doing especially treadmill cardio and especially the step mill, you have the stair stepper, either if it's the pedal stair stepper or the actual rotating steps, um, which by the way is about one hell of a feat of engineering. Can you imagine the first person that was like, let's make a rotating staircase and put it into a gym. <laughs> Somebody's probably like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? So especially on those gravity-based machines and for sure on the treadmill as well, do not lean on the device. If you do, whatever calories it says you're burning, you might as well just throw that the fuck out of the window. You have no idea what, because the actual calories you're burning is going to be how much weight are you actually moving with your lower body? Well, if you're leaning over like 70% of your weight, you are now exercising like a 25 kilogram child. <laughs> They don't burn a lot of fucking calories in an hour, okay? They run around, you give them a piece of pizza, they're back to work. So uh, it's just one of those situations where people get, you know, super tired, super lazy, and it's totally cool because we all do that. But then they'll start leaning on the machines, and some people just start to begin with. And because they're like, you know, a lot of people measure their cardio in time, you know, mm -hmm. they'll say, well, you know, I do cardio for this much time. I did, you know, an hour a day. It, it kind of the logic becomes is so like I have to do an hour a day. The easiest way, the easier that hour can be, the better. So then it's just leaning on the machine, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like one of those things where, why well, uh, you know, you're not there to accomplish time. As a matter of fact, cardio has lost time. I like to listen to podcasts and stuff like that when I'm doing cardio because you might as well fucking learn something just staring at a fucking wall for forever. Um, it's funny enough, it's probably one of the one of the biggest reasons I started jujitsu is because I got tired of doing walking cardio all the time and going fucking nowhere. Um, I want to learn a skill. But in any case, it's one of those things where you're there to burn the calories, right? And in, 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 in a sense that the more challenging you can make it up until it's too fatiguing, of course, the better. And, and, and the crazy thing, the really crazy thing, and Steve, maybe you can comment on this because I'm sure you've seen it in the gym before. People who like put the treadmill on like 15 incline and like 4.4 speed and then lean. It's like you could have the speed and the incline, just let your arms drop and walk and it would be the same effect. Why are you doing it's, it's like It's like eating a ton of food and then vomiting half of it out. It's like, I... What do you think that's accomplishing? You're not tricking anybody. Thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, I relate to it so strongly because I was just saying to you, Mike, Cal, yeah, on the cross train, I literally, I'd put on like some disco music, close my eyes and then like lean into each arm and like just let oh, yeah. the machine take me on a journey. And once the, the, the calories or the time was up, I was done. And um, yeah, it's, you're completely mitigating what you're trying to mitigate in the first place. All those adaptions. Exactly. 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 So I, I guess related on that point, we probably started off with a question that's just arisen and that is to do with like metabolic adaptions and adaptions to cardio. Um, and something I've spoken to Jared Feather about was the fact that I'd like implemented kind of however many calories of lists per week, but obviously you get more efficient at it, let alone adapting that, that way to it. Um, do you ever have any mod like ways you periodize cardio to kind of get around this? Do you ever think maybe you start on a cross trainer, you get more efficient at that. So maybe then after that you move towards another vehicle, um, to get your cardio in, or do you just increase it like 10%? What would you, do you have any thoughts on that, Mike? This is a really, really good question. And sort of a, a very, very fertile ground for potentially complicated, but hopefully illustrative answer. Um, so there's a couple of trade-offs, as you well know about this kind of thing already. There's a, a bunch of trade-offs all the time. Uh, yes, your efficiency increases in any modality that you do. One is you get a general increase in metabolic efficiency. It's not big, but it happens. You just um, uh, become more efficient. It, it, however, at the same time, as you get into better and better shape, per the same level of relative intensity, you actually start to burn more fats and fewer carbohydrates for fuel. Mm -hmm. In my mind, sort of colloquially, those kind of tend to cancel out. And then the result is that we probably don't have to worry about fat kind of efficiency at a nice. metabolic level. That makes sense because on the one hand, over the weeks and months of dieting, you are becoming metabolically more efficient at cardio. On the other hand, that means you're burning more fat as a percent of fuel. So as a, a total calories burned, you might take a hit, but you're burning more fat, less carbohydrate, which is really good. So yeah. that's kind of, I think, maybe it doesn't cancel out mathematically, but it certainly cancels out to a large enough extent where I don't think we have to worry about that a ton. The big kind of efficiency that probably matters a bit more is movement efficiency. You get better at moving in such a way that doesn't burn as many calories. And this is great because in endurance sport where the purpose is to be uh, as fast as possible and given that you, your body can only pump out a certain amount of energy, the more efficient you are, the more forward motion there is per any given use of calories. So an endurance runner wants to be as efficient as possible, and there is a number of techniques in running, which if you do not do them, you burn away a shitload of calories doing dick. Uh, and if you do them, then you know you are really just saving calories and extending your reach. Um, in swimming, this is a much bigger deal than running, for example, because swimming, you know, the resistance of water is so huge that technique is paramount. You know, to a mm -hmm. trained swimmer, swimming is like walking for us, but to an untrained swimmer who just can swim and that's it. Oh my God, swimming is the hardest fucking thing in the yep. entire world, right? So um, there is that efficiency uh, gain. It's got some positives and negatives. Um, on the positive side of the adaptations is you start to develop a groove of efficient movement that is in the medium term less likely to get you injured. 
For example, if you take grandma out and start having her take walks and she's not used to walking at all, what's going to happen with her feet and her knees and her hips? Well, they're going to be tracking in ways that aren't really optimal for her current physique. And it's going to take her a couple of days and weeks to get used to moving her physique in a way that uh, is most efficient and doesn't do as much joint damage, for example. And even she'll develop calluses on various parts of her feet, right, where she didn't used to have them and it won't you know, have any more like sock burn or anything like that. And then she'll be better able to do the necessary volumes that will get her in shape just the same way with competitive bodybuilders and other people interested in getting leaner when you start doing a lot of cardio you know steve what it feels like when you start incline walking for the first time in months you're like fucking christ my adductors are sore why my knees hurt what the fuck is going on like this is unsustainable but within a couple of weeks you're like dude i could walk up fucking mount everest if someone told me to i would need some fucking serious food to get up there and shit and maybe a bodybuilding trophy up there or some shit but i could do it so um that efficiency and that stride efficiency movement efficiency is fundamentally a good thing because it allows us to do the requisite volumes and intensities with more fluidity, with more ease, with less medium-term injury accrual. Now, notice there's a caveat to that. It allows us to do the higher volumes, which means we have to take that and do higher volumes with it, right? So we do, we should, but then, then again, cardio should be expanded anyway as time goes on. So that expansion in how profound you want to fat burning to be as your neat falls off, right? You got to make up for that to some extent with cardio, um, so you should be raising your cardio every couple of weeks anyway, maybe every month during prep. And, uh, you know, that should compensate a lot for that. But because you are more efficient at it, it's not going to be daunting. Like when I'm really in my cardio groove after a couple of months of dieting, fuck dude, on the elliptical, I can do 600 calories. Like I'm fucking blinking an eye. Like it's, it's like almost fun. Go put on some music and, you know, I don't do headphones because I'm like more of a social guy. So I'll literally bring a boom box. I'm just kidding. <laughs> bring a boom box that can make everyone listen to my shitty electronic music. But, um, you know, so I'll jam and it's all good. And I, I my knees don't hurt. Not, you know, everything feels great. Now, to your point of alternating cardio modalities, if you are doing back-to-back shows especially, and it, or if you do cardio during the off-season, which I think is a good idea in small amounts, If you're doing months and months and months of cardio, the wear and tear situation starts to happen. So remember I said that the the gait efficiency is a medium-term adaptation. That means in the long term, yeah, you got good at moving like that, but now you're really just wearing the same structures over and over. And because your pattern of movement is so similar step to step, which is a good thing because that means you're not going to damage structures every time you step, but now you're kind of wearing the knife into the same part of the cutting board, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And the joint structures get affected in the same way, and you will run your fucking legs off your body doing that shit. So is a good time to maybe move away. So, so what I would recommend there is when you're actually cutting uh, and doing a contest prep or a long cut, you know, eight weeks to 12 weeks and then for a contest prep longer, um, changing cardio modalities midway through is too disruptive. Right? You got leg workouts to do. You got recovery to do. You can't be like, oh, I tried the step mill and I couldn't fucking use my calves for a week. Um, nor do I have the food coming in to actually replenish the, you know, the protein loss. So I fucking 
fuck that up, right? So I think pick your modalities. It's probably good to pick a couple. One is fine, but I usually pick like two, like incline walking and or elliptical. And I just based on how I feel, how everything feels, I'll do one or the other. Sometimes I'll do both for workout, but I usually just alternate them. And then when you switch to the next thing, like when you're in your off season, let's say the first four weeks, go on the bike or go on a step mill, do something different because it's going to be a little bit of it. So it's easy to adapt to. You don't have to be like, you know, hit the ground running. If it's 200 calories per session, who gives a shit if it feels like shit, it's over in 20 minutes. So um, give yourself a break from always incline walking, always doing the elliptical. So then when contest prep starts again, and for a couple of months, you've been doing the step mill and or bicycle, go back to the favorite cardio modalities, the ones you can really do a lot of, and then start sequentially um, moving up in how much volume and possibly intensity you do with them. So like I said, long fucking answer, but I guess that's why you have me on here. <laughs> yeah. No, that is exactly why you have, we have you on. And I really like the answer in terms of kind of the fact that we become more effective at burning fat as well. And actually it's something I've thought about generally, like I keep cardio in the off season to a minimum, but when I'm in that kind of uh, the resensitization phase when they're maintaining and they're on low volumes, I kind of put in a little bit of list during that time so that they get a bit used to it. And then I, kind of double it when they're coming into their cut so they're kind of totally I, my thought was that they're kind of adapted to it so they can start burning fat straight away totally and also just like less um you know people say like you know it doesn't matter what you feel but the, the more emotionally smooth your cut can go the better because negative emotions tend to cause stress which causes a cortisol secretion which is adds to cumulative fatigue it's terrible so if cardio if you start prep and it's like, hey, remember how you used to eat fun foods? Yeah. Remember how training used to be low volume? Yeah. Remember how you had all this free time? Yeah. Remember how you weren't hungry? Yeah. Remember how you used to not do cardio? Uh-huh. Well, all that shit is gone. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck? But if you threaded in some of those things earlier, then when you actually start reducing calories, you're like, eh, it kind of feels like the same, so no big deal. It's, I th I'm a real big fan of easing into stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't like the shock approach. I think shock is better done when you've eased into stuff and you keep doing more of it. It's like the situation between a uh, similar analogy is like starting with five by 10 in the squat on week one and getting super fucking sore. Not a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of starting with three by 10 or two by 10, but at the end of week six, you're up to eight by 10. Yeah. It, that's going to be shocking. I don't give a fuck if you eased into it or not. Like if Mike Tyson eases into boxing you, he's going to beat you to death one way or the other. There will be a shock. Mm -hmm. So I like to ease into the shock because by then your body's used to handling it. It can appropriately put it in the right places and there's less chance of injury. So just the same with diet. I like the, you know, in cardio, I like to weave them in uh, so that there's not a huge, like, cause you know, some people, man, this isn't usually something we talk to uh, about because we're in the evidence-based crowd. I don't think most people make this mistake, but in the out in the jungle of the non-evidence-based crowd, there's this thing like people still do this idea, and the most pro bodybuilders and high-level folks have gotten away from it, thankfully. But in, in regular dieting, there's this on-off switch people like to hit. And I'm sure you've seen this with your own, you know, clients that have come to you from other coaches and stuff. Where you're like, all right, so they're like, okay, so I'm maintaining, but now I'm cutting. What do I eat? You're like, okay, you're eating 2,400 calories on maintenance. Now we're going to have you eat, you know, 2,100 and do like 300 calories of cardio every other day. And they're like, but I usually just drop straight to 1,200 and cut my carbs out completely. And it's like, 
there's not yes sure they will come to that in your week before mm-hmm. you're you know you have zero percent body fat or whatever but that's going to be nine weeks from now you, you've got to ease into shit because if you just cut it right then and there you know shelby starns a very good prep coach has come up with you know a variety of scenarios here where he's like where do you go if you stop getting results with that and also how much muscle do you lose on your way to your body finally adapting to that few calories it's it's insane but people have this like on off switch idea where they're like i'm fucking starting prep that's it we're going straight to hell and it's like let hell come to you don't run into hell there'll be plenty of time for that shit no yeah brilliant answer and um right well that was a good starter and we i think a great um, with just a great a great discussion first of all but we do have um a discussion me and pascal actually had and pascal wanted me to ask you this specifically on the podcast and i think we've maybe touched on something similar before at least i've heard you talk about it before um or on a related note it was to do with you're kind of say you're overreached on one muscle group. Can you deload that one and continue like overreaching other muscle groups? You don't take a deload like for the whole body at once. But Pascal's question was, can you overreach in different weeks on different body parts? Um, can that be an effective strategy? And we had a discussion with it and I thought there would be an issue. And I think Pascal as well, that the systemic, there would be a systemic fatigue issue in that you'd kind of, you fill your MRV to the top with kind of these bits and then you drop it here and then you're kind of never getting away from systemic full MRV in a, in a sense. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if that made sense or if you can. Make total of- sense. Um, Pascal is German. I really don't like to answer questions by German. <laughs> so I'll just take a pass. Um, what's it called? So it's a really, really good question. I'm going to preface this question by saying I'm not entirely sure, but I have some thoughts on the matter. I think that there is a very good argument in especially powerlifting and strength sports structure for having emphasis, de-emphasis weeks or parts of a week. For example, um, Chad Wesley Smith so I consider one of the best programmers and best coaches I've ever personally seen. Um, he'll do something like in a, in a five-week mesocycle with four accumulation weeks and one down week, he'll do two really hard deadlift workouts, three really hard bench press workouts, and three really hard squat workouts. On the weeks that you're working out the deadlift the hardest – you're not benching very hard and you're not squatting very hard on the parts of the week in on the weeks that which you're squatting and benching hard when you're benching the hardest hardest the squat isn't that hard but still hard when you're squatting the hardest hardest the bench is pretty easy especially in that week before depending on your structure so that the lifts get their own little bubbles of when they're really being hit yeah. It's an emphasis, the emphasis within the mesocycle. Now there's still a progression up with everything, but it is this progression. It's not just that up with everything at the same time, because with his lifters, they're so high level that they can't come to a total peak at the same time. Okay. They, week four for them, they cannot PR on squat and bench press and deadlift workout all at the same time. It wouldn't happen or the PR would be much less than if they peaked at it for the same time. That being said, and especially in a hypertrophy sense, 
we're talking about a style of training there that is designed to peak your performance in the gym. That's for strength. And you have to come in and perform really hard. With hypertrophy, it's more about getting the work done than about really performing your hardest. And in hypertrophy, uh, if you peaked various things at various times, you're messing up the logical and sequential accumulation structure of some of those things. So for example, if you had a five-week accumulation block, actually five weeks of going up and then one down, so a six-week mesocycle, you decided to peak your triceps at week three and peak your chest at week two and peak your back at week four, what the fuck do you do all the other weeks like after that shit? So like, let's say you peak your triceps at week three. What do you do with them in week four and five? Maintenance? Maybe? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a tough call. And then if you're doing that kind of really weird quick accumulation and then mostly maintenance, why not just put triceps on maintenance the entire time and go through real accumulations for the other body parts that you're still training? So because we want to spend a lot of time accumulating the pulsatility factor of trying to really peak in one area or one area uh, at a time for just a couple of weeks here and there doesn't nearly as much allow that sort of process. With strength training, you know, the fatigues are much higher and there's not as much need to sort of accumulate workload. There's a need, especially in super high level lifters, to be feeling good, feeling good, really reach out and hit a PR, go back down, relax, feel good, feel good, really reach out and hit a PR, go back down. For, for most bodybuilding trainees, it's a matter of inching from MEV to MRV slowly and getting all the gains through that. And that kind of pulsatile structure doesn't really, isn't really conducive to that. Now, am I sure that that logic is 100% sound? No, but that's my best guess. And if you try to structure your own training by peaking everything at different times, it's going to be a giant clusterfuck. And it's at the very least going to be very difficult to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, is there a situation in which you accidentally overreach a muscle group at the wrong time? Yes. Then you just mini deload like half a week of super easy. And then you start climbing back up the ladder after that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so, and, and, you know, and again, in strength, it makes much more sense. Like for what I used to do, interestingly enough, back when I used to be a power lifter, sometimes I would do up, up, down, super up and then down again because that week before the peak week really was a deload in, in and of itself and it gave me superpowers coming into the peak week so i would really get these incredible super good results as far as rep prs mm -hmm. when i transitioned to hypertrophy training primarily i kept that architecture for a while but then i just started uh thinking like i started thinking i was bullshitting myself i was like all right i hit 315 for five by 12 in the squat like that's so great and then i thought well i could have hit like almost that much this week but i could have also hit like 305 for five by 12 last week i missed out on a whole fucking week of good meat and potatoes training to do this little peak so i think in athletes that are incredibly highly advanced even possibly bodybuilders 
they might need that extreme pulsatility to grow because that's the only fucking thing that makes them grow anymore. You know, mm-hmm. four by eight with like strict and slow repetitions just doesn't do anything for you when you're super advanced. That's just somewhere between maintenance and minimum effective volume. It just doesn't do anything, right? There is a very good argument that you have to really shock the system to get any kind of growth for super advanced individuals. Most of us are not in that position. Most of us should be milking these slow gradations, spending a lot of time with good, steady, incremental, progressive volumes and intensities. And these patterns of deloading and accumulating, deloading, accumulating, they're just basically like replacing good training with showing off. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, it's kind of like... Um, uh, actually an exact analogy almost would be like eating very little at some meals to eat a ton at meals after that, like in between. But nobody's getting big like that. How do you really get big? You eat plenty, but not too much at every single meal. And that's how you accumulate the most food over the day. So a similar situation where I don't think it's the best way to go about it. But like I said, if you need to, you know, if you fucked up totally. And, and here, let me say something while I'm ranting. Let me say something about that. Um, if you really overreached a muscle group and you fucking know in your heart of hearts you did, don't be a fucking idiot and keep slamming it. Don't do that. Your triceps, like for example, your triceps got sore, let's say over the weeks, sore for two days, sore for 2.5, sore for 1.5, sore for three, sore for seven and a half. <laughs> what do you do in the next week? Let's say you're still accumulating. You need to fucking deload. But you're like, no, 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 I can't. I feel mostly healed. Folks, don't do that. <laughs> okay? Take the deload. Take the easy. Reduce the fatigue. There's 100 trillion different good reasons to do that, injury prevention included. Take the hit on the chin and then go back and go, okay, whatever I did last week was dumb as rocks. It was over my MRV. And I shouldn't do that anymore, but now that it's fucked, you know, it's, it's kind of like people say, well, now, now that it's fucked, whatever, I don't give a shit. Well, it's still your fucking body. Like, it's like, like oh, you know, I didn't heal from last week, but fuck it. I got to do it this week. Like, no, you don't. You can, just, you're in charge. You know, you can always take a couple of days under most situations and, and you know, especially for your bodybuilding, your constructional schedule, uh, back off a little bit and then hit it again. No worries. Um, and even I've, as, as, as recently as a year ago, I was kidding myself. I I was doing these leg press and squatting workouts and I was getting sore to the point where I'm like, hey, something's wrong. Like this is doms beyond doms. And then the next week I was like, Nope, I've got to present an overload again. Yeah. And I would do more. And I did that like two weeks in a row. I was like, Israel, stop being a fucking idiot. And I deloaded a little bit. Then I came back to slightly lower volumes and I, I got that really good soreness, the intermediate kind, you know, that's a pump sore. And after a couple of days, you feel great. I was like, okay, thank fucking God. And it's funny enough, my legs looked smaller every week because I was depleting so much glycogen and never allowing it to replete because it was sore all the time. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I'm literally back paddling and out of pure addictive traits, I'm still trying to hit it. So if you feel that you need to back off and you've gone too far in a muscle group, um, for Christ's sake, do it. And, and, and just one super last thing to add, you know, they ask the experts every now and again, especially in the like late 90s, early 2000s, people would say, you know, if I'm sore, should I still train? And they'd be like, yeah, soreness isn't a big deal. You know, as long as your strength is recovered within the first 72 hours, you could still train. It's like, yes, but like if you're consistently sore every time you're coming into train again, I guarantee you your volume is excessive. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> That's setting yourself up for no PRs, and it's setting yourself up for higher injury risk, and it's setting yourself up for chronic overreaching, which is really, really bad news. So. Mm-hmm.
No, I think that's a fantastic answer. And like covering so many different points and angles that hopefully are sufficiently answered for the German. And I'm sure it's given them a lot to think about no, as well. Of course not. Um, There's no sufficient answer for the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Never, never enough. No. Um, but I definitely know what you mean in terms of, and I think loads of people will be able to relate to this in terms of being stubborn um, with kind of trying to overload and like you're in the middle of your mesocycle and you're like, right. I'm going to really struggle to overload this next week, but I'm going to do it. And you just end up maybe maintain, maintaining and you just, you get closer and closer to risking injury. And I don't know whether the quote is perfect in all scenarios, but kind of the quote of one rep can't make you, but it can break you. I quite like because I mean, injuries don't make champions kind of consistently training injury free and pretty hard is what makes champions and like we all want to be a champion in our own head so 100 percent. that's a really good point yeah and like what, what are some of the stuff that people end up doing like let's just like talk to the folks here through a couple of scenarios like you know you're getting into this next accumulation week and you're, you're a lot of times this comes from sort of arbitrary planning of i'm gonna hit this number this amount of weight for this number of reps and last week it was like supposed to be three from fail, but it was one from fail yeah, yeah. and you know it. And now there's five more kilos on the bar with one extra set tacked in it before that. Um, and, and, and you're like, you make a decision. You're like, okay, either I'm going to have good technique and I'm not going to hit the PR or I'm going to have to like kind of throw technique a little bit to the wind towards the end. Don't choose that second option. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll make this as, as so. So that's the the calm sort of measured plea uh, for folks inclined to to listen to other sorts of appeals. I'll make the following: Nobody gives a fuck about your bullshit rep PR with 120 kilos for sets of six in the squat somewhere in bumfuck nowhere Australia, where nobody even gives a shit about anyone because fucking kangaroo spotting you. <laughs> And I can make the same statement about everyone. You think anybody gives a fuck about me? I don't. When I videotape my lifts or when I don't, who gives a fucking shit? Like I post a video. Oh, I got a PR on the shoulder press. Oh my god, fuck Doctor Osar, you fucking hero. You're changing the world. No, that shit doesn't fucking matter. What matters is that you make gains over the long term because that's why we're all on this shit. So you're like, no, I gotta hit through. I gotta hit 150 kilos for five by ten. I gotta do it. Like. No, you don't. Big Ramey is curling that shit in Kuwait right now. He doesn't give a fuck about you. Like, it's one of those things, like, in the grand scheme, it means dick. So if you got this idea that, like, oh, my God, I have to hit it, like, if you're well-prepared and it's with good technique, enjoy. But if you got to, like, struggle to get it, you're in the wrong sport. Yeah, it's that good old saying of leave your ego at the door because, yeah, no one cares. And like you, like, like you've said before on podcasts, like you like the hell out of stuff on Instagram when you see people doing good technique. It's not the heavy loads. It's not any of that that's impressive. It's the good technique. And I, like, Absolutely. everyone knows their results have been far superior. And loads of my clients have commented on how much better their results are when they just take stuff back to ground zero. And they build with good technique. Um, yeah, that's the way that th things should be. 100%. Cool. So I think that was a brilliant uh, answer to that question. And we'll get to our next question from Christopher Sobek, who um, is talking about weight fluctuations and the effect on a gaining phase. So he generally weighs himself. Oh, Mike, can you still hear me okay? Yes, absolutely. Sorry oh, cool. about that. 
no worries. So he was just talking about sometimes he has very big jumps in his weigh-ins. Um, so his weekly average then is skewed to being quite high. Uh, in reality, he may not have gained that much. And the high average is just due to the fluctuations. And he was just saying, how do you deal with that sort of thing? Um, and I feel like this is something I kind of spoke about, like that adipose phobia, that fat phobia kind of mindset that a lot of us get into when we're bulking. But yeah, those, those crazy high fluctuations with kind of massing. How do you deal with them, Mike? Because I know you weigh yourself fairly regularly and things like that as well. You know, I deal with them mostly through crying. I'll step on the scale <laughs> and it'll say a number I don't like. And Steve... Sometimes I can't even see what the scale says because, you know, the water of the tears distorts the digital image. Um, and to me, that's kind of good because my tears have literally wiped away reality and I could say anything I want. I could even say zero, which is my ideal weight because I don't want to be on this earth anymore. Yeah. Um, after I'm done crying, however, I realize the following. If this gentleman knows that it's weight fluctuations and it's not real tissue, He's already has this, this, this. It's already the answer. It's one. It's, it's like some someone saying, "Look, okay, I'm scared of ghosts, but I know they're not real." Well, they're not real. Just let that really sink in, and you won't be scared of them anymore. And if you really don't believe that ghosts aren't real, that's not going to comfort you. So, if he really thinks that it's just water weight fluctuations, your two week running average should reflect that. If your two week running average is really high. It's not just water weight. Does that make sense? Because when we when we balloon up, let's say someone weighs in at you know uh, eighty seven kilos, bloated as fuck, after pizza. If it's really water weight over the next three days of normal eating, they're not just going to drop to eighty five. They're going to drop to like eighty two. You know what I mean? Like something crazy low, because it's like oh, turns out you weren't even eighty five big. You were much smaller. So. If he is actually falling off to 82 or 83, great. If he's falling off to 85, 86, that's not all bloat. <laughs> so give it a couple of days, give it a couple of weeks, and if there's a huge bloating effect going on, the concomitant drop of bloat is going to be a huge um, sort of uh, opposite mathematically to that, and it'll stabilize your average. But mm -hmm. if the bloat is super-duper high – and there's no rebound from it, that's not all bloat. <laughs> that's tissue gain, and, and then that's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I guess, actually, that's uh, something I used to use as a bit of a marker for myself was when I used to, like, guesstimate meals out, and then I'd see my scale weight, like, bounce up. And if it didn't come back down and my average wasn't like back in line, I was like, I probably underestimated the number of calories I was eating in those like meals out. Maybe um, so I think that's a good way of looking at it. In addition to that, would you suggest kind of keeping and bearing in mind like your other tools of assessment, like how you're looking in the mirror, like does the scale reflect kind of, are you looking that bloated and fat or are you looking okay? Would you take that into consideration? Oh, totally, totally. But like, you know, that stuff is a little bit, I'm not saying it's not a good idea. It's a great idea. It's a little, it takes a little bit more of an expert's eye, uh, just more of experience. And it's really not even experience that anyone can, can teach you. Um, as much as it's just looking at your own body because everyone's body looks different. Like I have a distinctly different look when I'm bloated versus when I'm fat. So uh, for example, like my love handles is where I store a shitload of fat and a shitload of water. If I jiggle them, 
and they jiggle a ton, it's water because only water jiggles like that. If I jiggle them and they feel pretty hard, I'm like, oh, God damn it. That's fat. There's no, you know, there's no dehydration that's going to get rid of that. So a number of markers on my body, my body, not everyone else's, I've gotten pretty used to figuring out that, okay, that's what's going on. Another one is, um, especially from food mediated bloating, if you're bloating for like health reasons or something, it could be different because compartmentalization is different. But if you have a bunch of salt and carbohydrates and fluids the day before, and that's why you're bloated, you're going to get gnarly fucking pumps and have vascularity that's just out of the fucking moon. But if you, over the course of the weeks, are like, oh, I'm just bloated, but your vascularity is not as great as it used to be, and your pumps are like, eh, um, you're probably just fatter. So in conjunction with all that stuff, you got to be honest. But that stuff really comes in, I would say, the three- or four-week mark. You know, Can you really tell if you're gaining fat in two weeks versus bloat? That's tough, Steve. <laughs> um, there's where your weight averages play out. Um, over the months is where I think more of that other like scale and mirror and, and mirror kind of stuff really starts to play out better. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, it's such a small change that we're trying to measure and kind of the surplus isn't outrageous. Well, it shouldn't be outrageously high anyway. So the changes in a week, like you said, it's a two week average, which is going to help average things out even further anyway. hundred percent, hundred percent. Let's say that you're at a uh, 500 calorie surplus per day on average. And let's say you had a cheat meal and you suspect you've gained a pound of extra fat on top of your usual weight. That's 3,500 calories. That's one fucking hell of a cheat meal. And even if you did eat that, the probability that it all stored a fat is going to be really low. So, you know, thermodynamics doesn't quite work out like that. Uh, Yeah, okay, so fine. So maybe you have to eat like 5,000 calories in one meal to store an actual pound of fat tissue after that. A pound of tissue over someone who's like a meter 80 or something like yourself, I mean, it's barely noticeable. A pound of tissue is something like half a percent of fat for many people. Mm-hmm. Can you tell half a fucking percent? I mean, fuck, if someone's like, you know, people ask me like, hey, Dr. Mike, what's your current body fat level you think in this video? I'm like, fuck if I know. Somewhere yeah. between 10 and 13 and they're like well you kind of look nine to me and some people will be like you kind of look 15 to me and i'm like hey, look both guesses are just yeah. fine <laughs> like who the fuck knows so it's one of those situations unless you're really good at looking at your own body even then spotting a pound of body fat is tough and i think it's mostly a fool's errand yeah. trust the process let the scale guide you and uh, if you think you're overeating stop being a fat fuck and stop overeating yeah and actually, this is brilliant because this brings us to um, a question from, oh, I'll just get to it, Patrick Johnson, um, who is our army man, I refer to him as. Uh, and uh, he basically brought up a question which I actually was really interested to hear um, you answer because I'd seen it brought up. Um, and this was to do with kind of mini cuts, um, but doing them during a lower volume phase. Because traditionally, kind of the way RP structure things, then the way I like to structure things as well, is have that nice maintenance phase before you go into a cut so you can kind of let the body settle, mm. let all that fatigue settle mm. down, become sensitive to higher volumes again, and then cut with higher hypertrophy-style training. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, this mini-cut that you've talked about with Jared is kind of like, I think, from what I know, it's kind of a less aggressive mini cut to just clean up a little bit while you're dieting. I think you've actually run one fairly recently as well. Is that right? I'm currently in one right now. Oh, yeah. 
So if you want to talk to it, kind of explain your thoughts on it um, and why this might be a bit different to a traditional cup. Totally. So when we're mini cutting, almost always it is in the grand architecture of trying to become more muscular. Mini cuts are very fucking useless in the grand architecture of trying to become much leaner. You don't need a mini cut then need a fucking mega cut, <laughs> right? So if someone's very over fat and they want to drop a lot of fat, it's going to take sequential eight to 12 week on average cutting phases with about that length of maintenance phase sandwiched between each one. There's no mini about it, right? Um, I remember that, you know, uh, Lyle McDonald wrote like the rapid fat loss handbook and uh, a lot of people used it to very great effect in that mm. particular mini cutting type of thing. But some people got on it and they were like, oh, it's great. I lost all this weight. And I, I, I probably Lyle was shaking his head. Well, he's probably swearing up a storm, I'm sure. But it's, it, you know, people misinterpreted that particular tool to be like, this is how I'm going to get lean finally yeah. and lose 80 pounds. Like, no, 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 no. That's not a rapid process. You don't want to do that. Like, it's like, okay, you got some cool shit coming up in a month and you need to drop like 10 kilos of fat. Okay, great. That's great. But this is not a sustainable thing you're not going to eke it out so the mini cuts that we do are to potentiate further massing and the way they do that is because we have a pretty decent understanding that the leaner you are the more muscle you gain when you do start massing and also if you can subject your body to a lowered levels of both insulin and carbohydrate, just nutrient availability you become more insulin carbohydrate sensitive etc and you can rebound and grow more um, in addition to that, it is possible to resensitize yourself to volume at the same time to some extent. So why not when we're prepping ourselves nutritionally for a mass, which is really what a mini cut is designed to do is designed to give us a good launching pad for another mass phase. Yeah. Why not prep ourselves not on the nutritional end only, but on the training end as well. So why not take our training and make it a little bit lower volume than usual. And then when massing starts, we can really open up and be really sensitive to volume and really have a good productive cycle. I think this is a fine way to do it. There are a couple of caveats. One, if you start running cycles of, of cutting that are longer, anything over eight weeks, low volume training combined with over eight weeks of cutting is a good way to start losing muscle. Not a great idea. Secondly, the lowness of the volume has to be intermediate to that uh, between what you usually do for massing and what you usually do for maintenance or, as you call it, a primer phase, right? Yeah. Um, because those volumes are so low. So remember, so, and this is something we got the, the, in, a, in a, a month or two, we'll have the volume concepts book out. And we say that hypocaloric dieting low, uh, raises your maintenance volume. The amount of work you have to do to keep your muscle is higher if you're eating fewer calories because the catabolic signaling you have to fight to counterbalance with the anabolic signaling of muscle has to be greater, right? Yeah. So when you're, in a, when you're in a mini cut, oftentimes the deficit is pretty substantial because you don't risk – you can run a substantial deficit because first of all, it burns you a shitload of fat. It really insulin sensitizes you. And second of all, because you're not – running a long diet, you don't have to worry about the longevity potential of deficit, right? We don't start with big deficits on long cuts because we know we have miles to run. Yeah. Like if you're catching the bus, you can do a full sprint. If you're doing a marathon, you don't start with a full sprint. 
So on a mini cut, you can actually be pretty aggressive. Uh, you know, 1% of body weight per week is totally cool, mm-hmm. but that means your volume of training can be lower than it otherwise would be, but not usually it would be around what your massing minimum effective volume is, cool. not what your maintenance volume would be. Does that, you still get me there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's cool. cool. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So like, you know, if we're saying like an average minimum effective volume is like 10 to 12 sets per exercise on a mass, I think like that's probably the volume you want to shoot for in a mini cut um, and kind of just stick around that volume, maybe go up a little bit in volume. But remember, you're not really trying to, there's not a lot of adaptations to fight. You're not trying to put on a ton of muscle. You're just trying to stay into catabolic. So you can just, you know, up the intensity and volume just a little bit um, and, and not go anything crazy. And then when, you know, you're back to massing, again, start at 10 to 12, but then you can slowly go all the way up to 20 sets or whatever. You don't want to do like five sets body part per week or six on a mini cut because then you're going to lose muscle and you're going to spend some of that mass cycle regaining that muscle, which is time wasted. So it sounds like it's kind of like if people are thinking about a how to set up their training, it'll be like the intermediary between your first phase of hypertrophy and your maintenance kind of strength style volumes kind of meet within the middle of those is probably like a good sort of point. And the Absolutely. only way that it, don't run it for longer than like a single mesocycle. If you start running it longer than that, then you're going to run it. It's not a mini cut anymore. Absolutely. Then you got to treat it like a regular cut. And if you want to run it like, so one question we get relatively often is like, okay, so I've run the mini cut for four weeks and I had a pretty aggressive deficit. I kind of want to keep going. Don't, there's nowhere else to go. You already fucked yourself by starting with an aggressive deficit. You got to recover from that shit. Otherwise you're just running a really stupid diet that starts out too extreme and gets even more extreme. That makes sense. So run that shit for two to four weeks I think um, in, 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 in guys using anabolics and growth hormone and stuff, you can run it for as little as two weeks and it still works. For natural individuals, I'd say run it more like three to four weeks and you get some really good results. Um, and then just do a good job of fat, intermediate volumes, less food. And then when you get back into massing, boom, you're going you're gonna to skyrocket right out of it. Cool. And I guess uh, there was something I was going to bring up was – because then normally when we, we kind of go for that maintenance phase, we're doing that partly to kind of secure the muscle mass that we've accrued and not just drop training fatigue. Do you think in an ideal world, kind of you would still have that maintenance phase in place? Do you think that would be superior because you do have that time to actually allow kind of some, maybe some delayed muscle growth to still occur because you haven't cut calories straight away? Do you think you're kind of ideally you'd have the maintenance before a mini cut or do you think actually... You're not missing out on anything there. I don't know. Jared and I have debated this between the two of us, and we're not really mm-hmm. sure. Jared seems to think that he needs at least a couple of weeks of maintenance before he drops even into a mini cut. I don't seem to need that, um, but I have no idea. We're stabbing in the dark. Um, I think my in, my best guess is that if it's a mini cut of two to three weeks, I don't think you have to take a maintenance before that. You're not really risking some kind of crazy muscle loss. Um, if it's four weeks to five weeks, I think the longer you're cutting for after a mass, the you know, the more full your maintenance phase before all that needs to be. Yeah. It's like preparing for a journey. If the journey's not really yes. long, like, yeah, it's okay. But if the journey's long, you got to take your time to really sort everything out before you go. Awesome. No, this is, this has helped me because there's an element. I love mini cuts and I think they're really helpful. And I've always done kind of the, 
the refueling before the mini cut. Um, and often find, times I find people, and I think this is the thing people have to be really wary with, with tra- taking this approach is, yeah, you have to keep it short. And then if say they are ending that mini cut or they think they're ending it, but they're like, I need to extend this by another number of weeks. Would they be in a better position then to take a maintenance if they weren't ready to mass again and then go into like a traditional, more traditional cut um, rather than just trying to end like they go into that position where they're like, right, I finished my mini cut or I'm meant to have, I'm meant to start massing again, but I actually need to cut continually. Should they take a maintenance before they then go and cut again? Absolutely. Yeah. Because your mini cut is like beginning a marathon with a sprint. You thought the sprint was going to be over, yeah. but someone's like, hey, let's just keep going. And you're like, okay, let me tie my shoes. <laughs> let me stretch out a little bit. Let me get some water with me, and then I'll go on a long run with you. Does that make sense? Yeah. You got to do a maintenance phase because otherwise, man, Jesus, I don't even know where you go. You go, oh, I'm just going to keep cutting. Like, okay, well, you're at a 1,000 calorie deficit per day. You gonna fucking do more than that? Are you out of your mind? You just—it's it's a ticket to burnout, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Awesome, no brilliant answer, and I think that will have helped a lot of people out. Um, have you got time for another question, or should we? One more for sure. Yep, what? and then I gotta get running after that. Brilliant. We we'll get to Justine, um, who has a question asking: Is the body fat set point uh, that we talk about, um, or well, is it a body fat set point or a weight set point? She's asking. Um, is there, a, is there something different between those? I know we've talked about kind of maybe even muscular set points. Um, I know they're all theories. What are your thoughts on kind of, and what, how do you use the mic? All tissues probably have independent set points and then you have an aggregate set point. So, um, I think the tissue set points are more important. So for example, if you have an individual that has stopped lifting and used to be very muscular and they're just eating sort of normally, they usually lose a lot of weight. They don't really lose any body fat. They keep most of it, but then they lose a shitload of muscle mass and then they get to really, really small. There are individuals that start eating as much or keep eating as much as they were when they were training. But a lot of times that eating is, I I, unfortunately think it's more emotional where they're replacing something that's missing with, you know, as far as pleasure with food that they used to have from training, et cetera. When you look at bodybuilders, retired bodybuilders, most of them are not that big anymore. I mean, Dorian Yates kind of looks like a regular guy. Ronnie Kuhlman kind of looks like a regular guy, right? Mm-hmm. So their muscle set points, you know, when they started to lose muscle, you know, muscle set points need to be upkept with training. Now, if they really started training again and, and dosing heavily, they could come back up to, you know, age, age not being a factor, Think if you're age 25 and you uh, get into an unfortunate car accident, can't train for a couple of months, and then you, um, you know, you get really demotivated and you don't train for a couple of years. When you come back to training, your muscle set point is very similar. You balloon back up to how Jack used to be, no problem. Yeah. Age is not a factor. You're still in your 30s. You're good to go. Um, but you know, if weight set point was really that strong these people would gain shitloads of fat as they lost their muscle and still weigh 300 pounds, which they mostly don't. Most retired football players are much smaller than they used to be. And we look at individuals who are just as big, those people are borderline eating disorders pretty much, right? Um, so fat set, so the individual tissue set points I think are more important. 
Yeah. Fat set point is a real thing. And it's a motherfucker, man. If fat set point wasn't as powerful or as real as it is, the obesity epidemic would be a third of as powerful of what it is because you would just put people on, you know, obesity drugs and you would get them good trainers and diets. They would lose the weight. They would get off the drugs, stop training, stop dieting and walk around like nothing ever happened. You know, like people say there's a lot of really dumb shit said about obesity that just people like, you know, speak from ego uh, and like kind of the, you know, people on the more right wing side are like, everyone's fucking lazy and a piece of shit. That's why we have obesity. And people like way too far to the left are like, you know, obesity is never anyone's fault. <laughs> and you're like, okay, both of you guys are completely insane. But some of the stuff you get from like, well, everyone's, you know, the reason people are, you know, obese is because they're lazy. It's like, so how come completely lazy people are sometimes skinny? Are they secretly hard workers? No, because if they don't have a baseline of body fat and the genetics to get there and the eating habits, they don't have that set point to drag them up. It doesn't yeah. go anywhere. So they, you know, you have 20 kilos of total body fat. You eat a big meal to a week later, your body's like, nah, we're just going to go back down and you're not going to weigh anymore. But if you weigh, you know, 150 kilos and you have a shitload of body fat, it doesn't like to go away and it mm -hmm. keeps pulling you back up. Now, there's a difference here between set point and settling point. Settling point is a little bit more intermediate, a little bit more flexible. There is some good theory to illustrate that set points maybe don't change ever or they take years to change. Right. This is illustrated pretty well by uh, monitoring formerly obese people that have lost weight. Unfortunately, very, very many of them go back up to the same weight they used to be. Um, now, your settling point can change. The best way to understand a settling point from an intuitive perspective of how you live your life is you get to have fun foods and you get to have a lot of foods and you get to be a normal person, but you always got to stay on your P's and Q's. You always got to keep exercising on average. You always got to watch your diet somewhat. You can't just be free in the wind and mix Oreos with peanut butter and swim in pools of chocolate milk <laughs> like regular skinny cocksuckers can and nothing <laughs> happens to them, right? You'll, you'll never be a skinny cocksucker who can just do whatever the fuck they want. But yeah. with some really simple steps, because your settling point has been brought down, you're not going to blow up to be the fucking Michelin man anytime soon. But the set point is that deep physiologically ancestral reminder there that's like motherfucker you fuck this up you're back up to 350 and yeah. that's a probably about one of the most confident statements on physiology i can make because the literature on that reality is is dauntingly overwhelming you know like when the, when the literature comes out on like here's a new way to grow we're hopeful that it works because we really want it to and we tend to yeah. be like yeah the literature is good this is, should be a way to grow and it's like yeah maybe it's not that good this is one of those where no one wants this literature to be as good as it is yeah. and it is you know it's like oh but maybe we can get around set point and set point literature is like nope 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 go fuck yourself and you're like all right i guess this is reality so Sad news, but again, you can fight it, and a settling point can change. It just always, always going to have to keep one eye open. It's like you know, watching the ring video from that horror movie, and you know, when the bitch comes after you, you're always going to have to fight her off whenever the TV turns on. You're never going to have peace in your life. But if you can beat her up, you're good to go, man. No, I like that, and I, I, it reminds me of even in myself. Like I, I know personally, I found it over time. I found it easier and easier to get leaner and stay leaner because it's kind of like, like these maintenance phases and I get the habits built up that allow me. So it's part of that set point and settling point 
Um, I think for like, it's a big reason I love RP because you're the first kind of people I saw pushing these actual just times of maintenance. I, don't, I think a lot of people are always trying to lose fat, always trying to either lose fat or gain muscle. And they don't take time to like let their physiology and psychology kind of level Adapt. up. Yeah, yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. So yeah, brilliant answer. And I think we'll call it a day there. Um, love these Q and A's. We're getting so much great feedback from the mic. So yeah, thank you once again for coming on the show. And I know everyone appreciates it massively. My sincere pleasure. I love the questions. Love being on the show and uh, let's keep doing it. Awesome. Cheers guys and take care.